I am willing to wager 20,000 pounds that I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. Do you accept? Don't accept. I accept. The train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. everyone and welcome to 80 Days and Exploration Podcasts. Today's podcast is brought to you by three history and geography nerds in an internet-powered balloon. And this podcast is dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly. I'm broadcasting from Dublin, Ireland and joining me today are... Mark Boyle in Surrey in the UK. I'm Joe Byrne in Galway, Ireland. And in today's episode we'll be talking about Hawaii. Specifically the big island of Hawaii, which is also called Hawaii. Hawaii is the southeasternmost of the Hawaiian Islands, which make up the U.S. state of Hawaii. The island makes up 63% of the archipelago's landmass, but only contains 13% of its total population. The island is the third largest island in Polynesia, behind the two main islands of New Zealand. With a total area of around 10,000 square kilometers, or around 4,000 square miles, Hawaii is similar in size to the islands of Puerto Rico or Cyprus, or our old friend Gambia. With a rich history and culture, Hawaii and its sister islands flourished as ancient societies, developing unique religions and customs, that is until the arrival of one Captain James Cook. In 1779, the famous explorer made his second and final landing here and would not make it off the island alive. By the end of the century, the islands came under the protection of the British crown, and missionaries soon followed, changing life forever. The 1800s saw modern developments and the consolidation of the Kingdom of Hawaii, but ended in the annexation of the territory by the United States, a controversial episode to this day. In 1759, Hawaii became the 50th state in the Union, now famous for tourism, spam and pineapples. Hawaii, also simply known as the Big Island, is today home to around 185,000 people, and due to ongoing volcanic activity, Hawaii is the only U.S. state that is still growing. Okay, Joe, what are you looking forward to telling us about in today's episode? I'm looking forward to telling you about uh, how a fire goddess ran away from the sea and resulted in somewhere that's really good for looking at the stars. Cool. And Mark? So I'm going to be by who had a pretty interesting life, including arguably the worst trip to Portsmouth anyone's ever taken. Uh, and that that is a long... Ever been to Portsmouth? Yeah, you know how bad a trip That's to a Portsmouth can be. List. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a long, mm. long list. Uh, and, and also, um, he was pretty, uh, pretty ambitious about uh, uh, wiping away the, the culture that preceded him. Uh, and I've got a choice quote about that as well. So yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about this guy. Okay. Mine can be summed up in one word, which is pineapples. Yeah. I think we're all going to talk about pineapples at some point, but uh, I'm looking forward to talking about Pineapple King, Pineapple Island, uh, all the, all like the, the majority of the world's pineapples. Um, okay. Wow. I don't, I don't, so, I didn't realize quite how pineapple this place was going to be. Oh, very pineapple y. Because yep. they're not, like, pineapples are from South America. Hmm. <laughs> so, anyway, you're going to explain, presumably. What? I will explain a little bit about the Pineapple King and the Pineapple Island, yeah. Great. So. And the, the, the classic pizza, I assume. Is that... <laughs> oh, yeah. I haven't really even thought about that, yeah. I will defend the classic Hawaiian pizza. It, it, it's mm. a, 
it, it's not an everyday pizza. They, they they deny it comes from there. To be fair, just I I'd say own it. I you know put my arms around that weird sweet salt. Hey, this is the most controversial thing. thing that's ever gone on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I feel like Hawaiian pizza after doing the research for this episode should have spam on it. Mm-hmm. But it, that's it, a that topic would be for another day. Yeah, more appropriate. Yeah. Uh, Mark, you also did an interview for this episode. Uh, yes. So um, one of the reasons we, we chose um, uh, the Big Island of Hawaii is because it meant we got to do a, a little bit of a collaboration with a podcast I am a huge fan of called Offshore. It's done by Honolulu Civil Beat, uh, who are a nonprofit community-supported uh, news outlet in Hawaii. And uh, you know, compared to our, uh, let's say, ramshackle internet-powered balloon, they, they are... Uh, they are proper professional types. They're 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 really, really, really good. They, they are very. They're not recording from underneath their stairs. <laughs> no, they're they are really good, really slick, and I I heartily recommend their podcast offshore. But um, I got to talk to Kuu uh, Kuunewe, and my apologies for uh, obviously making a very poor job of the pronunciation of her name. But um, yeah, we we had a really interesting conversation about uh, some of the work that they've done, uh, and just kind of talking about some interesting aspects of of. Hawaiian societies. Hi, my name is Ku'u Ka'uanoe. I am a digital producer here at Honolulu Civil Beat. It's an online um, nonprofit news organization in Hawaii. But I'm also the host for this season of our offshore podcast that tells stories about Hawaii that people might not have known before. And a lot of my interest um, is in Native Hawaiian issues as I'm uh, Native Hawaiian and also born and raised on this island. So you'll, you'll hear a little bit from Ku'u at, uh, at some points later in the podcast. And thanks to Ku'u for her uh, contribution to this episode. And also, uh, we should note at the top, probably, or at least I'm going to note, that uh, poor pronunciation is going to be a theme throughout this episode. It's, it's true. <laughs> yeah. Hawaiian yep. is interesting. It's surprise. It's like deceptively simple. Like there's not that many letters in the Hawaiian alphabet, the, the native language, but there results in long words, and that little glottal stop is hard to pronounce properly. Mm-hmm. So, I do wonder if the Irish tendency to speak aggressively fast has mm. has really not paired well with the uh, with the <laughs> phonetic uh, uh, you know phonetic nature of of the Hawaiian language. Uh, it uh, they they don't mesh well. They're probably together. a lot more chilled out on their island than we are on ours. Uh, yeah, we'll we'll yeah, try our perhaps. best. I'm 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 gonna name a lot of volcanoes and we'll see how 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 we do. <laughs> All right. Uh, Joe, you want to kick us off with some early history? Uh, no. Oh, okay. Go on. Because I'm doing geology. <laughs> oh, yes. Excellent. Well, that's, that, that qualifies as history, Does right? Does it? Okay. That's um, far, far uh, history, yeah. Right. Hawaii's kind of all geology. Like, it's it's the whole point, the whole reason this chain of islands exists is some pretty hardcore geological processes that are still going on, um, albeit okay. a bit more chilled out than they were when our story begins. Um, and I mentioned at, at the beginning that, you know, I was looking forward to talking about a goddess fleeing the sea. That's kind of how the, the the first inhabitants of Hawaii described what they observed, which was that as you go f- northwest from Hawaii Island to the various other islands, Oahu and Maui and so on, they get more battered and beaten up by erosion and less oh. active. But they're all volcanoes. And Hawaii Island is actually the most recent island to mm. come out of the 
the floor of the ocean as the Pacific plate moved across uh, a hot spot. So a lot of volcanoes I was aware of before are at the the edges of tectonic plates. Sure. This is not one of those. This is right in the middle oh, of a yes, tectonic yeah. plate. And there's, hmm. a, there's a hot spot on the Earth's mantle that the plate has been moving over slowly over millions of years. And the bit of crust above that starts to get you know, volcanic activity and earthquakes okay. coming through. Uh, and so the the island chain, is, I think there's some really old volcanoes that are now underwater again, off to the northwest of the Hawaiian archipelago. And there is a new island coming into being to the southeast of Hawaii that's still underwater, but not for long. A couple of thousand oh, years, wow. it'll be a new island. And it will eventually be bigger than this one. Presumably. Correct? Yeah. I think I read that somewhere, yeah. Cool. Um, but that's not our concern today. Our concern is just... Uh, the big island for now. The big island for mm. now. For the current geological epoch. It's the uh, the biggest island in the modern state of Hawaii. Um, and also, arguably, you know, we're going to get to how this ended up being the case because there's a con- contentious history around the current, you know, constitutional status of Hawaii. But uh, it is a part of the USA at the moment. And... Um, it is the largest island in the USA. So that's kind of fun. It's also the... Um, it's bigger southern. than Puerto Rico. Yeah. Oh, cool trivia. Um, it, it, it is 10,430 square kilometers or 4,028 square miles. Wow. Uh, and it's also the third biggest island in Polynesia. So Luke's probably going to talk about that. But Polynesia, the Polynesian Triangle includes... Two big mm. islands that are called New Zealand or Aotearoa, and Hawaii is also in there. So those are the three biggest islands in the Polynesian world. And our old friend Rapa Nui is quite mm. small by comparison. Yep. Um, it's in there too, though. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the youngest island in the chain and still the most active. So the big island basically formed over the last um, million years, and it's made up of five shield volcanoes, which are Kohala, Mauna Kea, Hualaile, and Mauna Loa, and Tiloea, in order, which are extinct, dormant, dormant, active, and active, respectively. So That's more than enough actives there. I think yep. any actives <laughs> is pretty... And if you've seen volcanic yep. activity in the news in Hawaii, it's here. Okay. In recent years. So let's work our way along. So from northwest to southeast... That's the ages of the island of the, the volcanoes. As much as the island chain is aged that way, the northwesternmost volcano, uh, Koala, is the oldest. It's about a, a million years old. Last erupted about 120,000 years ago. It's so old that it recorded the last flip of the Earth's magnetic field, Whoa. which doesn't happen very often. I didn't realize that happened at all, so to be honest. North and south occasionally swap. Um, the, the magnetic field of the Earth flips sometimes. Okay. It's going to be weird if it happens again, because I imagine it will screw up our old computers and things. Um, but uh, you can, you know, it, 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 that's how old Kohala is, that it was recorded in the sort of, if you do uh, segments of the, the strata, you can kind of see. Old computers, evidence people threw out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, it's eroded a lot into the ocean, leading to dramatic cliffs and rolling green hills on the north of the island. And after that came uh, Mauna Kea, which last erupted about 46,000 years ago mm. and is now dormant. Though there are occasional earthquakes as like internal readjustments happen, like little caves collapsing, that kind of thing. Oh, wow. 
um, but probably not actual tectonic earthquakes. Uh, it doesn't really matter if it knocks your house over, though, does it? Um, it is a gigantic mass of basalt, and Mauna Kea is arguably the world's tallest mountain if you measure from base to peak. It's uh, about Ooh. 10 kilometers, so it starts 6,000 meters below sea level and goes 4,000 meters above sea level. So that's more mountain than Mount Everest, but it, you know Mount Everest starts higher up, yeah. uh, if you will. As a result of its great height, it is a stable, dry climate uh, with a good airflow, and it's made it a popular site for international telescopes. Uh, and there is some controversy about that that I think we'll get into later um, in, oh, in, yeah. in the more modern era, uh, due to cultural and religious concerns. Um, but it is, you know, it's for, it's essentially above forty percent of the Earth's atmosphere. So it's allegedly the best site in the world for telescopes. Um, it's almost twice uh, elevation is almost twice that of any other major observatory, and uh, there is, as a result of it being so high, much less atmosphere between, yeah, the telescope and the stars you're looking at, and really that's one of the biggest hindrances in telescopy. Causes like, less you know, the, distortion or something. Is that yeah, correct? you get distortion yeah. and you get refraction and you get uh, 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 infrared in particular. I think is is certainly in radio telescopes they they they. They're knocked mm. back by water vapor and so on. So yeah, yeah. Well, in, infrared uh, energy is mm. literally absorbed by water. You know, uh, it it's um, those the, the OH bonds in the water vibration. Chem- infrared chemistry dork out corner frequency. guys. Yeah, uh, chemistry, chemistry, chemistry Joe. Bully chemistry Joe. Um, so yeah, so it's really interesting. But you know, uh, I think we'll we'll come back to the the controversy over trying to build a new thirty meter telescope in Manuka in the last couple of years, which does sound excessive. Uh, for yeah, it's a lot of telescope. You know, they yeah. already have <laughs> how many? Thirteen. Thirteen. Um, and Mark, you were saying that uh, offshore is like a whole. Series yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll talk about it a little bit later in modern day, but uh, yeah, it, it's okay. it's really, really fascinating because it's astronomers versus native Hawaiians, both of which traditionally good, and they don't agree. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> if it was astronomers really versus you know fascists, you'd be like, yeah, okay, you know, yeah. we know his side wrong. Yeah. Okay, so the next after Mauna Kea, the next uh, big volcano is uh, Hua. Lalei, which makes up much of the west coast, which is known as the Kona Coast, and is the location of the airport today. Okay. So the airport's built on a 17th century lava flow, which I suppose... That's not that long ago. Um, 17th century. Yep. So not not that long ago, but it it isn't still lava. Not that long ago. Mm. Uh, And there's loads of vents and lava tubes you can still see today. So like these tubes made of basalt, things that flow through that look really weird. They They don't look real. Then Mauna Loa, which means Long Mountain, is an immense um, volcano. It's just absurdly, like, there's so much rock that it's literally crushing the seabed around it and, like, you know, depressing the seabed because it's such a It looks like a ridge on the map. It looks like, Um, it makes sense. Yes, it it doesn't look as impressive as, as, it doesn't look as impressive as Mauna Kea, but I think there's, like, it's more material, but not as high. Sure. Very active. It's about 150 eruptions in the last millennium. The last was in 1984. And it occasionally threatens Hilo, the, the biggest city on the island, right? Which yeah, it's, is, it's, it's, nearby. it's sort of the de facto capital of, of this island. Yes, yeah. obviously not the I state. I think it's yeah, the yeah, county yeah. capital of Hawaii mm. County. 
Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, so it, it occasionally there's lava tries to flow towards Hilo, which is pretty scary. Um, and uh, Tilauea on the east of the island is the most active volcano in the world. It's visited by millions of tourists each year, according to lovebigisland.com. And it's uh, the most visited tourist attraction in Hawaii, apparently. So it's been erupting since 1983, and the last big eruption in 2018 and 2020 means that it's still expanding. In fact, 90% of the surface of uh, Tilauea is less than a thousand years old. So it's this is really new land, and geology isn't done here. And the name Tilauea means spewing or much spreading in the Hawaiian language, which mm. seems appropriate. Very appropriate, yeah. And then uh, just a few little kind of places that are scattered. So, you know, I mentioned this legend of Pele, the volcano goddess. Um, she is thought to have fled southwards from the older islands, trying to escape Namake, ah. the sea goddess, finally setting up a safe home in Itilauea. I knew she moved around, uh, I didn't where understand why. She was still, yeah, she was mm. still volcanoing oh, cool. there. Um, and so that sort of reflects the ancient knowledge of the older, the order and age of islands is kind of, it was there, people were inferring it from what they observed, um, even without advanced um, geological tools. There's a lot of huge landslides have happened over the years. The hill in the slump of Tilauea is like an example of this. Like, you know, it's a big lump of the mountain just falls into the sea and you get tsunamis, which are a threat to the island and to other places nearby. So there's a lot of tsunamis will come up in the modern era, but they happen from time to time. Then there is a uh, a geological phenomenon called Pele's hair, which is named Baller. after the goddess Pele, not the um, football player. Not the footballer, yeah. Different guy. Um, and this is kind of a, it's the official geological term for like drawn out strands of volcanic glass that are found oh, in craters wow. and they get caught in your clothes and stuff and they look quite cool. And then there is a Papakolea beach is a really distinct beach that uh, I suppose we should give a shout out to our, our trivia friend Crashmere for uh, pointing this one out to us. Um, it is a distinctive green sand beach, one of only four in the world, and it's in the Kau region. Uh, the beach is a collapsed tough cone eroded by the ocean, and the colour comes from the olivine minerals in the rock, which is a magnesium iron sulphate uh, mineral, which has this green colour. And as the, the, the tough cone has been broken down, it mixes in with the sand, and until that is completely washed away, the sand will continue to have this green colour. So people, you know, they've had to stop people bringing it home with them because it is quite rare mm. um, and it's quite hard to get to, but it's a, one of the top tourist attractions on the island. And then the final thing I want to say is that the island apparently has eight of the 13 climate zones. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Um, so within a few miles or within a few hours, you can experience um, lush fern forests of Puna, the sunny rugged lava plains of Kona, the cool and misty breezes of Waimea, the dry heat of Kau and the snowy plains of Maunukea according to, again, lovebigisland.com. So it's sort of a lot going on geologically and geographically and plenty of room for people to come and do things with it. I am just looking up uh, the pictures of the green sand beach. It's cool. And, uh, if you're listening to this, uh, if you make your way over to Instagram, I can almost be... <laughs> I can almost guarantee there's a picture there uh, posted on our account if you want to if you want to check it out. So uh, thank you very much, Joe. Tell us about the people, Luke. So I think, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Hawaii sits at the northern tip of the Polynesian Triangle, mm -hmm. 
which uh, we've actually discussed before. Uh, Easter Island is one of the other ends of the triangle, which is around 7,000 kilometers southeast of here. And New Zealand is around 7,000 kilometers southwest of here. Yeah. So that's, that's, that, those are the kind of the corners of the, of the Polynesian Triangle. Um, and when we say Polynesian Triangle, it's like the, uh, this is the area of the world that Polynesian people colonized over the course of what, about a thousand years by going yeah. out in canoes and bringing crops and their civilization and being to incredibly, uh, incredibly good at, uh, at wayfaring and, yeah. and finding yeah. uh, sp- tiny little specks of land within mm-hmm. this gigantic area of ocean, which we did discuss previously in uh, an episode or episode on Easter Island. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Dr. Mara Mulrooney. Oh, yeah. Uh, so you can uh, you can check out that episode if you want to hear more about uh, Polynesian wayfaring. We won't, we won't spend too much time on it today. But I think Dr. Mulrooney works in Bishop Museum in Hawaii. So She uh, does indeed, yeah. She, she She's another interesting thing about this, this place, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, the origin of the name is a little bit uncertain. From what I read, legends say that the, the islands may have been named by Hawaii Loa, uh, okay. who is like a legendary figure and the traditional discoverer mm-hmm. of uh, the island chain. Or they may have been named after Hawaii or Hawaiiki, uh, which is in, in many Polynesian languages is the the name of the homeland yeah. uh, of the Polynesian people. And sometimes kind of um, the heaven play, like the kind of the afterlife as yeah. well sometimes, so, some mythologies. And then elsewhere in Polynesia, Hawaii or a cognate word of Hawaii is the also the name of the underworld which, you know, again, I, I, I guess this kind of thing becomes mixed up, you know, when when these uh, people are, are separated for, for thousands of years, mm-hmm. um, you know, languages kind of shift and change. But um, it has a lot of historical meaning in, in Polynesian culture anyway, the name. Yeah. So there's a little kind of agreement. There's still a lot of um, debate from what I can see, academic debate around the first human settlements in Hawaii. I'm not going to be completely prescriptive here but uh it seems that people first migrated to hawaii from other polynesian islands and most recent research on first settlements puts the initial arrival of people here between 1219 and 1266 ad okay um and there were uh there there is uh from what i could see uh there's talk of earlier settlements established in the society islands around 1025 to 1120 ad uh, and in the Marquesas Islands, somewhere even earlier, a couple of hundred years earlier wow. than that. And there's folklore uh, tells us of Menehune, I think is is how you pronounce it, which are are sort of dwarf people uh, who built heiau and uh, fish ponds and and other kind of um, proto aquaculture. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess that would be the right the right right way to put it. Um, and like the legends say that these prove that people existed on on Hawaii before they were settled by the by the Polynesians, but there's never been any kind of conclusive scientific proof. Okay. Yeah, these menehune are said to be kind of legendary builders, and uh, the legends say that they only come out at night. Yeah. And will leave building projects incomplete if they're caught out by sunrise or discovered by uh, by big people. This this sounds very like like elves or something. Or yeah, I, I, I kind of yeah, folklore. I kind of had the the image of hobbits in my head for for some reason. Um, but I'm yeah, that's... getting like elves in the shoemaker vibe. Mm, yeah, yeah. But the older theories I, I, that I could uh, that I gathered said that uh, significant groups of Tahitians arrived earlier than this, and population growth was was steady and constant until the arrival of Captain Cook, who uh, I know Mark will talk about, oh, uh, yes. where disease uh, struck down many of of the of the people here. And this theory states that up to a million people lived on the islands by the time of Cook's arrival, but. Uh, more recent theories, which rely on ra- radiocarbon dating, 
speculate that the population growth was not as widespread or as constant as was uh, previously believed. And these theories are corroborated by abandoned habitation sites on Hawaii Island itself and Kahaulawe Island, which indicate that population levels reached a peak uh, in the years before Cook's arrival. Uh, because they didn't have a formal written language, i.e. they didn't write, write stuff down, our knowledge is a bit limited, but there has been plenty of research done on these early uh, Hawaiian societies. So the material life on, on the islands was hampered by the lack of metal, pottery, uh, or beasts of burden. Oh. Uh, but there was great skill in the use of wood, shell, stone, and bone. In terms of beliefs uh, and religion, the traditional Hawaiian religions are based on animism and spiritualism. And these religions are polytheistic, which we've already kind of touched on with the with the different go gods. I know you were talking about Pele earlier, mm -hmm. Joe. Uh, there were many deities, uh, most probably Kane, Ku, Lono, and Kanaloa. Ku, for example, is the, the god of war and demanded human sacrifice. Oh, God. Haumea is the goddess of uh, fertility who used a, a magic stick to repeatedly transform herself from an old woman into a young girl giving birth to continuous generations of humans. That's handy. And uh, yeah, perhaps uh, the, the most famous uh, goddess in Hawaiian mythology, as you mentioned, Joe, is Pele, the goddess of fire and, and volcanoes. Uh, due to her fiery temper and attempted seduction of her sister's husband, her father, Kane, uh, banished Pele from her home, leaving her to sail the earth and create the uh, Hawaiian archipelago as we know it today. Yeah. And that's kind of the legend I was talking about earlier of the kind of moving from place to place fleeing the wrath of uh, of her sister the sea who eroded her and i i have a quote here from a historian herb kawainui kane who has said of these beliefs that uh, the entire universe was an orderly fixed whole in which all the parts were integral to the whole including man himself man was descended from the gods but so were the rocks so were the animals so were the fish thus man had to regard the rocks the fish and the birds as his relatives hmm. so again that kind of belief that everything everything is connected everything is related uh, I was also reading, uh, there was multiple classes in ancient Hawaii. So at the top of the class system was the Alai class, uh, with each island r ruled by a separate Alai Nui. Oh, and that's the word Nui from, mm. from Easter Island, Rapa Nui. Mm. Yeah. So Nui means islands. Okay. Mm. And all of these rulers were believed to come from uh, one hereditary line, descended from the first uh, Polynesian Papa, uh, who became the earth mother goddess uh, of the Hawaiian religion. Oh, wow. Mm. So they're divine uh, Ali. They're oh yes, divine there was no movement between classes. So I'm, I'm going to quote briefly here from a, a book called A Brief History of the Hawaiian People by William DeWitt Alexander, who says the Hawaiian people were divided in ancient times into three classes, nobility, uh, i.e. comprising of kings and chiefs of various grades, uh, the priests, ahuna, including uh, sorcerers and doctors, and then the common people or laboring class, and there was a wide and permanent distinction between the classes of chiefs and that of common people. A common man could never rise to the rank of chief. Nobody conceived of such a thing as possible, nor could a chief be degraded to the rank of a common man or to that of a slave. If conquered in war, he might be slain and offered in sacrifice to the gods, but if his life was spared, he was still a chief. Fair enough. All right. So, yep. So social mobility, not mm. big on it. Uh, Kapu was the name of the social code that grew up in ancient Hawaii uh, during this time. And that, uh, along with traditional re religious beliefs, kind of dictated the rules by which people lived their lives. Uh, the Kapu was enforced by kahunas, who were elders and tribal chiefs. Uh, As in big kahunas? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Ah, cool. 
and they were seen as the representatives of God on earth, uh, doling out judgment and punishment. The, this this word, Luke, is, is cognate to taboo that people yes, are yes, familiar with. Absolutely, so the, yeah, the so K in Hawaiian, in Hawaiian is pronounced close enough to a T. It's like tapu. Okay. Uh, so it's it's not that much of a leap. But, you know, yeah. that, that, so that concept is probably familiar to people. Um, I think kapu refers to the entire system as yeah. well as the individual laws as well. So a law is a kapu. Uh, yes. And kapu is also the name of the system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my impression of this is that most of these are thou shalt not uh, yeah. rules as opposed to thou shalt. Um, <laughs> right. So, okay. yeah, they, uh, breaking a kapu, even unintentionally, uh, often meant immediate death. And as you said, Joe, the concept is related to, to taboo, uh, which is also found in other Polynesian cultures. Uh, and it's often translated in English as forbidden, uh, although it also carries other meanings such as keep out, no trespassing, sacred, consecrated, mm. or holy. Mm. Yeah, because I mean, sometimes uh, it means, you know, that, that, you know, the chief's residence after he is made a chief is taboo for some period of time, which means it's special, sure. but also that no one else can go there. That mm. kind of thing. It's yep. set aside, maybe. And there was definitely uh, strong distinctions drawn between men and women in the kapu system. So uh, yeah. kapu's uh, example of, of different kapu laws included the provision that men and women could not eat together. All right. Or they couldn't have their food cooked in the same oven. That's challenging. Uh, some foods were illegal for women to eat entirely. So pork, bananas, taro and coconuts, because they were all foods that represented various gods. Okay, and uh, there was also fishing rights uh, that that existed at this time. So it was limited to certain times of the year to prevent overfishing, which I thought was a really interesting thing really that interesting. I, I, mm-hmm. I wouldn't yeah. have thought would ex- have existed at this time. You also weren't allowed to come in contact with the chief's hair or his fingernail clippings or to look directly at him, uh, to be in sight of him or with a head higher than his. And okay. wearing red and yellow feathers was not allowed unless an individual was a high rank, etc., etc. Okay. And then... One interesting note that I came across was a book by a guy called David Mallow, who uh, described how a 15th century ruler named Liloa originated the practice of moe akane, which is the sexual relationship between males. Mm. Uh, And that these relationships had no social stigma and were accepted practices beginning with the alai and then uh, copied by other classes further down the chain. And warriors engaged in this practice, and it was seemingly very common at the time that uh, Europeans arrived in the islands. And Lieutenant James King, who you might talk about in your section, Mark, stated that all the chiefs had them, and recounts the tale that James Cook was actually asked by one chief to leave Lieutenant King behind. Oh, boy. And considered it a great offer um, (laughs) uh, for for him to want to take him as a a lover, I guess. So how progressive. I thought that was very interesting, yeah. So, um, yeah, that's early history of, of the islands. And then Europeans are going to arrive to mess Uh-oh. it all up. We'll take a quick break here and we'll come back with the arrival of uh, Captain Cook. All right, so Mark, Captain Cook. What's he, what's, he, uh, what's he doing here? What's he doing here? Well, okay, yeah, Captain James Cook. Uh, bit, I think he's, he's graduated to full 80 days all-star at this point. I think we can say that. Yeah, um, yeah him, him, Muammar Gaddafi, Ferdinand de Lesseps, uh, yeah. and Napoleon. That's kind yeah, of the, yeah. Rogue's gallery. Uh, 
anyway, uh, so he he's he's doing lots of voyages. Uh, he does his first. Uh, subsequently, he does his second. And here he does his third. And it's on his third voyage that he comes to the uh, island of Hawaii. In 1776, Cook leaves England on board the uh, two ships he has, the Resolution and the Discovery. Uh, and after two years, he arrives in the Hawaiian Islands. But does he go to the big island of Hawaii? No, he goes to a different island, Kauai. So who cares? Uh, he goes off and he does a bunch of other stuff. Uh, he goes to North America for a spell and then comes back to the Hawaiian archipelago, eventually landing on the island of Hawaii. It was early 1779. He made a landfall in the, um, you know, a bit of debate about this, but it seemed that kind of where he landed was significant, you know, religiously, and also the time he landed was significant re- religiously for the, the people who were there. So it was in... Uh, Kealakekua Bay, uh, which is on the west of the island. Nicely and, done. And, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I took a run at that one. Uh, but, um, <laughs> the way yeah. to do it. So uh, it, it is the Bay of Lono, and it was during the Festival of Lono. So I guess people kind of felt that it had some, you know, pr- pretty pretty significant import. Also, you know, it was the first European, so there was that kind of in the mix as he was well. A, he was a white man emerging from the sea. Essentially. So. And um, so uh, yeah. I assume this went well, given Hawaii is kind of an island paradise. What it, could go wrong? It's it started well as as the, not, they don't even always start well, do they? <laughs> this this one at least started well. So the locals uh, try to do the friendly thing and feed all these exciting new visitors, but this was an awful lot of food that was required, and they struggled to keep up with the kind of mandatory hospitality that they were trying to display. Mm. Uh, the local king, uh, Kalani Upu also had been away concluding peace terms after a war with the people of Maui. So he wasn't there at the time. Uh, But a quote from uh, the official journal of Cook's voyage says, No set of strangers were ever more hospitably received. Then there were... Yeah, it is nice. Good good start. Anyway, incidents. So he he treated them with respect and deference, I'm sure. Did he? Um, Someone threw a stone at the boat from a canoe, so they tied him down and gave the guy 50 lashes. Also, wow. this is another quote from the official account. Swarms of females who came to sleep on board. I do I do wonder about the context of that, and I do wonder about how happy the, the local Hawaiians were about that. Perhaps perhaps that was all good. Perhaps not. Um So Cook also had a robust trading style. Quote Captain Cook went on shore to expostulate with the chiefs and by some trifling presence to engage them to trade as before, threatening at the same time to lay their town's waste if they refused to supply the ships with the provisions they stood in need of. So, you know, cool, thanks, lovely. We will destroy you. Enjoy your trifling gifts. Yeah, exactly. Just what a what a jerk. Things kind of went down from there. Uh, I, I I saw like other accounts of little incidents here and there, and the order wasn't entirely clear, but yeah, some pretty unpleasant stuff. But eventually they leave. Uh, they head away, but the mast broke on the resolution, and they had to go back to the island of Hawaii. Uh, James mm. Burney wrote that Kalani Upu, the main chief, was very inquisitive, as were several of the chiefs, to know the reason of our return, and appeared much dissatisfied with it. Also, uh, <laughs> I, I think Cook shot a few Hawaiians as well, so just throw that. Throw this that this is the equivalent of, like, um, you know, uh, breaking somebody's wing mirror or something mm. and then asking them for, for a set of jump leads. Yeah, know, like, essentially, yeah. <laughs> I've just messed up your home and now I, I can you give me a hand? Sorry, I messed like, up all your stuff. Can I have more of your stuff? And then shooting some of their friends yeah. also. So they're, they're back in Hawaii now. Uh, the Hawaiians stole 
supposedly, or some Hawaiians, stole a largish boat from Cook's group. It was kind of one of these little skiffs tied onto one of the larger boats. Uh, and mm. Cook, you know, obviously super grateful for all the hospitality and help, totally was cool about it and just let it go. No, he, Wait, tried, he tried to kidnap the chief as revenge or oh, as a bargaining no. chip. Um, and uh, he had actually done this before in Tahiti and a different place called Raiatea. I've heard this about him, yeah. He, he loved kidnapping the chief. This was his move. Yeah. Uh, and he was really confident this was going to work. Did, did we encounter that in our Pitcairn Island episode? We did, I think. We had a little bit of Tahiti oh, yeah. there. Oh, the, mm. yeah, yeah. I, I was thinking about Bly. Was, was it Bly who did it at Pitcairn? Because there's a, a Pitcairn connection here. Actually, yeah. I was gonna, I was gonna bring that it. up because Bly, uh, yeah, Bly, uh, who you will remember from our Pitcairn episode if you've heard that one, uh, captain of the Mutiny on the Bounty, was actually on the Discovery. He was, he was, I believe, somewhat of a protege of Captain Cook's. Explains and he'd a lot. Been selected uh, yeah. for the position of sailing master on this voyage. Uh, and he was actually a witness from the ship to what happened next, which I'm sure you're going to tell us about now, Mark. No, I was going to skip it. Uh, just uh, <laughs> who, who cares? <laughs> uh, anyway, so they, they're trying to coax uh, the chief uh, onto the boat so that they can you know, kidnap him and ho- hold him hostage, basically. This is the morning of the 14th of February, 1779. But, uh, Valentine's Day. Jeez, <laughs> nice. yeah. His, his retinue got really suspicious and eventually people you know, uh, accumulated and attacked. Cook was clubbed on the head and stabbed with the uh, pahua through his shoulders until it stuck out of his chest. And four of his men also died along with him, uh, along with uh, approximately 16 uh, Hawaiians as well. So this is where Cook died. They killed him good. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't, didn't, yeah, so um, Bly would would kind of be one of the principal kind of narrators of what happened, like Cook's end. Yeah. uh, When he returned to England after this voyage. I seem to remember something from the Pitcairn episode about his remains were cooked. Or something. Uh, Cook's remains were 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 cooked or something. They, Is that they 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 were they did not hand him back whole. I'll I'll grant you that. Right. I, I think that um, initially they had kind of separated out into various bits and pieces because there was ceremonies that needed to be performed as a result of this big event. Yeah, this was a, this was like a deference thing. I think it it wasn't. Yeah, right. it wasn't an insult thing. Uh, but yeah. then mm-hmm. uh, I think there was a bit of back and forth between some of the priests who were like. Uh, they really are mad about this body thing so we really yeah. need to get got all his bits they, back they, guys they, they, like you know they kind of boiled him to get his bones out I, th- I think there was a bit of that because the, um, the bones are the important bit and they're like here yeah. you know, here are the bones <clears throat> you're going to bring them with you you don't want to decompose uh, I, I, I think you. they I, I read they gave him like they give him a, a bit of thigh and a bit of a leg bone and and they oh were like what what did where's the rest of him guy <laughs> and like yeah they were not they were not happy about it uh, yeah. So, well, I mean, another another point, and, you know, this is not described as a revenge thing, but this also happened days later, just, you know, uh, in context. 19th of February, quote, about two in the afternoon, all who were able to bear arms, as well as sailors and artificers as marines, were mustered and preparations made to sustain them, while with lit- lighted torches, they rode on shore and set fire to the southeastern town, the attacked town of the coast, uh, pursuing the frighted inhabitants while their houses were in flames with unrelenting fury. Many were put to death, our vengeance being now fully executed. Well, they call it vengeance, I guess. We returned to the they ships. They call it vengeance. Yeah, they, yeah. They, they call it out. Uh, loaded with the spoils of the towns, consisting of bows and arrows, clubs and arms of all kinds, which they would use in battle, and having the head of two of their fighting men of which the courageous native was one. There was a, 
a bit about this guy previously. Uh, stuck at the bows of the pinnaces as a terror to the enemy from ever daring again to molest us. So they, they ransacked a town, burned it to the ground, and cut off a bunch of heads and stuck them to their boat. That was um, the civilized, nice. civilized thing they did. Uh, sure. Anyway, so... After Cook's crew left the island uh, a second time, and a much more final time, Kalani Upu named his successor as his son, but also awarded a second-in-command role to his nephew, Kamehameha. You'll notice there how I named one of those Ooh. guys and didn't bother to name the other guy. Uh, that, that's, that, that's a sign. That's intention. Guys. Yeah, that's uh, su- subtext there. Uh, the first guy is, is, a, is a red shirt. Exactly, yeah. Uh, yeah. Blank void and Kamehameha. Uh, yeah. So once the king dies in 1782, uh, his son succeeds him. Initially, uh, some of the less confident groups on the west of the island around kind of Kona didn't see the new king as being able to protect their land rights, and think things came to a head at the Battle of Mokuohai, where the new king was hit with a stone and then stabbed with a shark's tooth dagger. Uh, Kamehameha hmm. then invaded the town of Hilo and embarked on a progressive campaign to conquer not just the island of Hawaii, but the whole archipelago. Um, hmm. And uh, just mentioned, there's another kind of, he has a few rivals in this period. And the probably the initial big dog he's against is Kahikili, who ran Maui and I think occasionally Oahu. Uh, but he was a pretty killy guy. So didn't really, wasn't really beloved of the people of those islands. Um, Tilly by name, Tilly by nature. Indeed. But Kame, uh, Kamehameha is uh, is a big figure, right? Uh, he, he, yeah, I mean, like we, we talk yeah. about, we, we I talk about uh, Mr. Name of Place. Uh, I yeah. think it's fair to call him Mr. Hawaii because uh, he, okay. you know, he, he is the guy who kind of, to a large extent, co- you know, consolidates the, the, the political entity of the islands. Would it be fair to say that's why the whole archipelago was called Hawaii because the king of Hawaii conquered the rest of it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I thought you were going to say because he was he called himself Mister Hawaii. No, <laughs> I, I think this is a, this is an interesting thing where I mean, I mean, also James Cook discovered, you know, this he, the, he, the he, Sandwich he, Islands. He called them, didn't he? He did call them Sandwich Islands. Yeah. So I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's less James school. Cook and, and and more the kind of self uh, refer- referencing. But I, I think an interesting thing here, and I noticed because I read the there there's an official book written by the Kingdom of Hawaii, which is kind of what is created by Kamehameha, and it. Um, you can see there's a move of gravity from the big island of Hawaii initially, because that's where you know, Kamehameha's power base was, uh, as we kind of go to the next and the next and the next in his line to Honolulu and Oahu, where, you know, you know to this day, that's where the kind of the main um, urbanization is and the kind of the main economic mm-hmm. activity is. So and, and also it's where the kind of the, the, the foreigners would base themselves. So as yes. as Hawaii kind of opened up to the world, Oahu and Honolulu had way more significance than Hawaii. So yeah, I, I think you, you might be right. It's just that like at this point in time, I think Hawaii was kind of the center of gravity for for Kamehameha, and therefore you know and he, his he dynasty as, as exactly mm-hmm. yeah. So uh, sticking with Kamehameha, we have the 1790 Olowalu massacre. A um, hundred Hawaiians killed by a fur trading vessel, the Eleanor. Uh, enacting revenge for the death of, uh, I think, maybe two of their crew members and the theft of a boat. Um, Sounds familiar. Yeah. When their companion ship, the Fair American, captained by the um, the son of the captain of the Eleanor, uh, it got lodged off the west coast of, of Hawaii. Um, they were attacked, boarded, and the crew massacred by a single survivor 
who Kamehameha took into his protection, uh, along with uh, the boatswain of the Eleanor. Not sure how they got him. I didn't ever quite figure that out. Um, but... Boson, Mark. It's pronounced boson. Really? Yeah, boson. boson. Yeah, inexplicably, that word is pronounced boson. Oh, sugar. All right. I, I shudder every time I, I listen back to our, um, what is it, Svalbard episode, where I, I called um, somebody coxswain. Or is it a, it's a coxswain, but uh, oh, right. it, it just looks, it, it just looks, uh, it's spelled it's pronounced boat, boatswain completely yeah. differently to how it's spelled. Yeah, yeah. Well, some people are weird. I've landed myself yep. in it. Uh, I'm a I'm a landlubber, uh, I guess. <laughs> uh, landed yourself in the poop deck. Uh, um, they managed to hide the evidence of this massacre, and the two Westerners that they took in would actually end up becoming like really important in Kamehameha's regime, and 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 subsequently as well. Like th- these guys are mentioned, and you know they're their um their descendants are mentioned uh you know in in decades hmm. to come but yeah they they, they help becomes a thing of like westerners in the in the cabinet more more and more for sure and advisors yeah anyway they, they help train his men and they help him uh, work cannons and stuff so yeah they, they contribute hmm. hugely uh the fair american uh would sail again in a naval battle off the coast of hawaii to defeat an armada sent by kahikili uh, in 1791 hawaii was finally secured by kamehameha and he turned his attention to the rest of the islands in 1794, and I didn't know this was a guy, the Hawaiian Islands came under the British protection via Captain Vancouver. Vancouver is named after a guy called Vancouver. Of course it's a guy. There's a guy yeah. called Vancouver. Uh, and he, here he is. But uh, And he was generally like really strongly welcomed. They allowed the British to kind of establish a protectorate over them, but refused to allow the British to influence internal matters. And also Kahikili died, uh, uh, opening the door for Kamehameha to, to really consolidate power across the islands. Uh, he now had 16 foreigners in his uh, in his army, several still working the cannons, uh, part of a wider group of up to 16,000 men he had under his command. And he soon took Maui and Oahu, leaving only uh, Kauai and Nihau left to conquer. Just uh, because you mentioned him, uh, Vancouver, Mark, I think he was the first person. I think uh, I read something about he presented Kamehameha with a British uh, ensign, uh, naval ensign, the, the, which is the flag, ah. the, the, the kind of naval flag. And that's where... Uh, I'll talk a little bit about the flag later on, as I oh, always cool. do. Oh, cool. Nice. But that's yeah, where so this that, originates that was, from. That was a... I think it was a Union flag on just a red on a red field initially. yes yes and fun fact it was before the act of union so yes. the irish uh saltire wasn't in it so oh, the, the yeah. union jack 1800 was, it didn't have yeah. the red x bit because that's that's an irish bit mm-hmm. yeah. all right cool So, listeners, as we edge towards the end of what's been a remarkable season and a really turbulent few years, we have some people that we really need to thank. And if you're not among them, I'd urge you not to hit that skip forward button because these are the folks who keep the show on the road or the balloon in the air, as it were. So, first off, thanks to new joiners Alex, Menage a Trois Designs, Bo, Joel, Happel, Stephen M., as well as a few old hands such as Christian Sybast, Riley Horton, Laurie P, William R, and Andrew McDrury. Thank you all so much again, and uh, let's get back to some regularly scheduled programming. Um, so Kamehameha doesn't really have it all his own way. He has rebellions back on the Big Island, uh, which slow his progress, and then there was a storm ruined his 1796 attempt to invade Kauai. Uh, he then turned to create a government 
consolidating his power, basically all, all in his hands. You know, it was a government to kind of funnel power to him, really. But he changed the system of district chieftains by redistributing land in kind of detached chunks to prevent, you know, his uh, underlings getting too much of a sort of a consolidated block of, of a power base. Um, hmm. And he also would keep his enemies very, very close, uh, ally of the Godfather, and um, uh, along with, you know, his his core group of chieftains who brought him to power. So, yeah, he kept he, he kept a pretty large retinue, I think. In 1801, we have the eruption of Hualalai, uh, causing widespread destruction. Um, and they, they, they threw in many pigs as a sort of a sacrifice, as an offering to kind of stop the lava flow, which didn't seem to work. But then Kamehameha cut off his hair and threw it in, which stopped the eruption about a day and a half later. So Kamehameha then spends several years touring his islands, uh, occasionally preparing to invade Kauai and being foiled by storms or disease or whatever, um, and undertaking lots of human sacrifices whenever significant events popped up, like the death of his brother. That was still... Still a thing they did. Hmm. In 1810, the king of Kauai and Nihau managed to negotiate a peace treaty with Kamehameha to keep his own position so long as he swore fealty and acknowledged that Kamehameha's son would succeed him. So, you know, his line comes to an end. Kamehameha, sorry, Kamehameha will rule from then on. And from there, there on, European. that's it. it. It is quite, it is quite, you know, it's it's quite advanced, I would say. It, it, it's proper yeah. feudal level negotiation. Kind of st- yeah, exactly. Very, very feudal. Very sort of like, you know, I will package out the land, I will control the succession. Yeah. And I'll, yeah. In 1819, Kamehameha dies at the age of 82 and his bones were concealed in a place never to be revealed. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, Kamehameha was followed... By Kamehameha too. Kamehameha too. Electric Boogaloo. Oh dear. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I I just called him. I mean, we we, we have there, there's a few Kamehamehas guys, so we're just gonna go yep. with uh, Kamehameha too. I might just call him K two for the sake of expediency. Kamehameha fast. Kamehameha furious. Oh boy. Uh, anyway, so uh, K two had a feast with chiefs of both genders, sending a big signal that quote the taboos are at an end and the gods are a lie. Uh, that was wow. uh, the quote from, from the book. I'm not sure if that's directly from him, but that was kind of the, the thrust of his point. Uh, the idols and sanctuaries of old were burned. The priests did not care for this and tried to anoint a competing <laughs> chief as king, but he fell at the Battle of Kuamu in December 1819. Uh, but still, many clung to the old religion in secret and was it would survive for generations. Weird that the priests weren't into it. Well, you know, mm. <laughs> normally so progressive. <laughs> Uh, in 1820, there was a big visit by a pioneer group of missionaries from Boston, timely mm. giving the collapse of the old religion, I thought. And uh, most of these guys would stay in Honolulu, but there were some staying on the island of, of Hawaii as well. And like, what was was his iconoclasm inspired by kind of Christian influence or he just mm. was, was done with religion? I think he just liked writing, Joe. I think he just... Mm. <laughs> As my next paragraph, uh, if you if you glance forward in the notes, uh, suggests uh, uh, oh, lots yeah. of drinking and debauchery. Yeah, okay. He doesn't like yeah. rules. Uh, uh, not okay. not one. For I the imagine rules. the missionaries had a but, big but impact. But it's perfectly consistent with kingship to have mm. restrictive rules for everyone except you. Like he could have just done that. 
He could, but he, he didn't. So um, Kamehameha received a gift of a ship from Britain, as had been promised to his father by uh, Captain Vancouver. Um, and as a result, he wanted to go to Britain uh, because, uh, in part, as I said, he was worried about invasion from Russia. There had been a few visits from Russia. They kind of, I think they'd set up a little fort at one point and were just kind of shooting out from it, the Russians, and were eventually kind of shooed away. But yeah, a bit, bit of a weird one. Um, not in, in, in the island of Hawaii, uh, I, should, uh, I should mention. So um, they, they charter a boat captained by an American called Captain Starbuck. In 1823, wow. such a good name. Great. Like you have to assume that's where Herman Melville got it from, right? Because it's have to. such a nuts name. Surety. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. look. Anyway, uh, so they they joined Captain Starbuck, uh, and they arrived in Portsmouth in 1824, where Starbuck basically said, "All right, piss off. Uh, <laughs> I'm done with you." He kind of ditched them on on the the jetty, I guess. He just told them to sugar off, and um, the British government were then made aware that a king was stuck in Portsmouth uh, and, and this guy had basically kind of like turfed them out, turfed them out of his boat. So they sent them a minder and paid for all their expenses, including, you know, hotel rooms and stuff. They were the toast of London, but the king's wife contracted measles, which they had no um, immunity to and died, followed then by the king. Kamehameha II oh. dies in England. Uh, that's weird. It is weird. I did, I did. That's maybe the thing I least expected so far. And just to flag, both Kamehameha uh, 1 and 2 are both uh, Hawaiian island natives. Uh, so the link is a little tenuous here, but, you know, they're, they're, they're still Hawaiian uh, folk, uh, as in from, from the island itself. Uh, less true as we go down the line a little bit. So eventually they get to meet King George IV uh, at Windsor Castle in September. Uh, and then they returned home in 1825 on a boat captained by Lord Byron's cousin, who was called Lord Byron. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, as was the custom at the time, as was the custom at the time. So uh, K2's brother uh, becomes Kamehameha III, K3. And while there are some events in the archipelago's life, uh, you know, as I say, a lot of stuff is happening. Catholics are turning up. They're not welcome. They established the concept of kind of formal laws in 1829. Um, There's a, a manual labor school for boys established in Hilo in 1837, which kind of as an example of a more formalized uh, education system. Um, I think there was sandalwood extraction on the island of Hawaii as well, which becomes a huge, a huge, you know, factor in the islands. <clears throat> Pardon me. And, um, you know, really significant trade with the, the outer world, but it also means that like sandalwood starts to kind of dominate economically to the detriment of everything else. Um, in 1837, there was a tsunami that hit Hilo and the sea went 12 foot over the high watermark, killing 12 people there. Um, wow. And it, between 1837 and 1839, we have over 7,000 converts brought into the Protestant church in Hilo. So uh, Protestants have a great mm. old time of it. Catholics, not so much. Um, missionaries are really getting on well. I, I don't know if you have to think about Mormons as well. There was a Latter-day Saint colony. No. Which is only, is only relevant because um, one of their erstwhile leaders would end up being prime minister okay so, oh wow a guy called gibson who might who might come up later okay yeah, Mormons get everywhere. there were there were some there were some uh, latter-day saints as well but I, I think i think protestantism like in the mainstream protestantism was the the major kind of missionary coming from new england mostly yeah I, I mean just a couple of other things again we're talking about hawaii and in, in in terms of the archipelago that a guy from england called lord george paulette tried to scam the entire archipelago 
uh, into his possession in 1843. Um, once he was disavowed by the British, the Americans sailed a few ships nearby and it all kind of sorted itself out. Um, and Hawaii's islands were reconfirmed as independent. Also, Hawaii was having a problem enforcing justice on foreigners. Uh, the French turned up in a very kind of... Uh, shooty mood uh, and really wanted their catholics to get a much better foothold as compared to all these you know protestants who were doing so well with the conversion game and in the 1840s revenue almost quadrupled uh for the kingdom of hawaii but uh while the national debt was paid off uh, it was partially because taxes were very high and locals as i said were kind of forced to concentrate on sandalwood to the detriment of normal activity like food so population went down uh quite quite quickly amongst the native population but I think I might take a pause there and pass the talking stick to you, Luke. <laughs> yeah, the the flag is composed of eight horizontal stripes uh, symbolizing the eight major islands. Uh, and it continued to be used uh, after 1893, after the overthrow of the Hawaiian kingdom, which we'll talk about later on. It originated, uh, I mentioned earlier, from a naval ensign, which was first presented to Kamehameha by Captain George Vancouver. Uh, and the inclusion of the Union Jack of the United Kingdom is a mark of the Royal Navy's historical relations with the Hawaiian Kingdom. It's a weird choice. Yeah, it's quite they were odd. never even a colony. Like, well, they, they were just... they were protectorate, and they they really mm. liked Vancouver. Like, he was he was thumbs up in their eyes. I guess he visited because... with Cook as well. I believe uh, he he'd been he'd been one of the people that visited with with Cook. Oh wow. Um. Yeah, and it is the only U.S. state flag to include a foreign country's national flag. <laughs> understandably it's a weird thing to do <laughs> yeah and there have been many different versions of the flag with different numbers of stripes and colors uh and the number uh originally the flag was designed with either seven or nine horizontal stripes but in 1845 it was officially changed to eight stripes with standard colors and uh the the color, you can find the flag in our show notes as usual but the uh, from top to bottom the stripes are white red blue and then white red blue and then white and red again and i think i read somewhere that the colors are slightly different than the official colors for the british flag are they they look the exact same here but yeah, yeah i mean it's possible when it comes to flag making mm. uh, the specific specifications and i think the the aspect ratio of the union jack is different to the british national flag as well it's like a slightly wider and narrower or wider and less tall just to be weird interesting well, th- they've converted the british flag back into you know ounces and furlongs uh, yes <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. As, as we voted for in brexit yeah and then uh, just the last point is that in 1990 uh, the the governor of, of hawaii john waihi claimed 31st of july to be la hey hawaii or the hawaiian flag day and it's celebrated every year since then. So right. definitely be listening to this on July 31st. Uh, you know, happy Hawaiian flag day, I guess. <laughs> so be honest, Luke. How many flags out of 10 are you going to give that? It's a bit I mean, pants, isn't it? I like the... Come on. I like the color Come consistency, on. but yeah, no, it's... I mean, any flag... Say we've it, talked you love about the it before. Union Jack, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> Burn your passport. I have nothing in particular against the Union Jack, uh, but I think we've talked about it before that any flag which has another flag in the corner, like a thumbnail it's, essentially yeah. on it, is, is, <laughs> is pretty poor. Several flags down. So I'm going to give it a four, maybe. It just... But we'll just leave it like such generous. a rich and interesting and and an ancient culture there's so much history here so much stuff you could have you could have volcanoes you could have you know you could have 
even a pineapple would be better. It just it, it doesn't <laughs> a bit on the say nose, anything maybe. Hawaiian. It's like a guy gave us a flag once. We we thought this is just flags. Yep. You know, we well, didn't realize I mean, there were different ones. Let, let me let I me try like to flags on your flags, bro. Like, I don't I don't feel motivated to do this because of the the flag that's on their flag. But uh, let me take take a take a sweep at may, maybe it symbolized them kind of uh, you know reaching out to the world. Uh, and this was kind of yeah. the first step, and it, that, it was symbolic of that for them. I am really reaching here because I don't like this flag. That, that's personally. a lovely chart. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let, let, let's let's assume you're right and uh, move on. Let's move on. Yeah, <laughs> oh, boy. one out of ten for me. Yeah. Oof. Um, okay, so uh, I've had an Irish flag in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure, likely. Uh, anyway, so 1855, uh, Mauna Loa erupted, and there was 15 months of a two-mile-wide lava stream shooting towards Hilo, but it stopped eight miles out. Dear Pele. Yeah. Uh, in 1859, it went again for another seven months. We have a quick shuffling of, of kings. Uh, Kamehameha V replaces Kamehameha IV in 1863. Seen as a bit more energetic uh, than some of his predecessors. We, ha- we had some guys there that were go- only there about for a year or so. You know. This is a, a reboot of the franchise. I, th- I, think, I think we're skipping three. I'm not sure if I even talk about three. Uh, you know. But five replaces yep. four. Skipping four as well, really. Uh, mm. And uh, let's, be, let's be honest. Uh, but Kamehameha V was seen as a bit more energetic than his predecessors. He pushed a new constitution which would last 23 years, stipulated that for those born after 1840, they had to read or write to vote, and there was a property ownership qualification also. That's kind of sound, having a kind of a, co- like a, a literacy, but only if you're born after schools came in, kind of that mm. rule. That, that seems, you know, like you're not trying to disenfranchise people mm. retrospectively. Or, or you're only disenfranchising the young poor. That would be another way of yeah. Well, yeah. okay. <laughs> um, sure. Anyway, um, so they they ho- he also pushed for the importation of labor from China. Uh, mm. As as I said, there was this labor coming in from from China at a certain point. I think Mexico as well. I think there was even some Puerto Ricans came in. Like it it, it, it the picture gets very complicated. Yeah, Chinese and, and Japanese to a smaller extent labors were became really common in the. That's true. The european and american run plantations let's mm. be honest the plantations were not being run by native hawaiians much at all which is something that will come back to those chickens will come home to roost so we have more earthquake activity mauna loa in 1868 erupts with uh, plenty of earthquakes that pretty much leveled the region of cow and killed 31 people there uh, in a related three-mile mudslide, there was also a tsunami that killed over eighty people Ooh. as a result. So yeah, it was this. This was a pretty big one. There's also this story. I thought I quickly mentioned it. Uh, a self-styled prophet from Kona, uh, upon release from the Honolulu Insane Asylum, went home to Kona. When the police tried to eject him and his followers, he killed the deputy sheriff, and his followers killed another policeman the next day. This guy, uh, Kaona, and his approximately 75 followers were sent to Honolulu to face the music, and five were eventually convicted for manslaughter. So, yeah, just a oh. weird, weird aside that popped up in my my kind of abridged history of the Kingdom of Hawaii. Um, K5 dies in 1872, followed by nobody, uh, basically. <laughs> the line of Kamehameha's dies with him. Uh, they're replaced by a man called Lunalilo, who was a chief, but uh, was kind of you know, just about connected with the Kamehameha line, um, but uh, kind of to Kamehameha 1. But don't get too attached, of course. He dies after just a year and was replaced by a guy called Kalakawa in 1874, who went on to tour to the US and signed a free trade deal with them. I, I believe the first ever 
state dinner in the White House. Was, oh, really? Uh, King Kalakaua. Interesting. Is that right? Is that... Kalakaua? Kalakaua. Was King Kalakaua. So he, he got a lot of international recognition for, sure. for Hawaii's independence. Yeah. Um, and was quite, I think, quite jolly and jovial and, and you know, good at making friends and, and all that kind of thing. Yep. But there have been a bit of controversy about like who would succeed who. Like I think there were a number of different parties vying for kingship before him. There there, um, there, there was, yeah. And like yeah. it's it's interesting because like they they kind of they would try to kind of almost I think there was an election in his case. Yeah. Was, I, th- I think he had like ninety five percent of the vote in the end. But it was kind mm-hmm. of like they decided who it was going to be and then they did a vote to kind of formally bring it in. Um, I, th- but, I think uh, the wife of the previous king yes. was also a candidate. So that there was a pretend, like it was possible for women to be chiefs. That was something that was possible in Hawaiian culture. And I mean, also just to flag in, it, I mean, I, I am skipping so much here, guys. Like there, mm. there was all of this stuff around kind of having kind of dual chiefs. I think kind of when Kamehameha came in first, he was kind of one of two. And, and even beyond then, there was still other people with really significant influence. And, you know, as you say, some of them, some of them women. Um, so it, it, it is a much more complicated picture than I am. I'm detailing and relating here. It is. It is. Yeah. But the, there was, yeah, there, there was, a, there was a, like a house of representatives and a house of, of nobles. I yeah. think was part of the, the political structure, which was obviously the, um, the Ali and, but, the vote wasn't just for Hawaiians, so any of these descendants of missionaries or or people who set up plantations, yeah. they were getting votes and they were using them. Yeah, I think I think um, you know that that's kind of where we are at Kalakaua, uh, kind of f- finishing his time. Hawaii is a relatively you know it's much more developed than than when we kind of started at this this bit and uh, has has reached out to the world and is, is kind of raising itself up the agendas of other uh, other nations. White House dinners, thank you very much. Indeed. Okay, we'll take a quick pause here. Joe, you had some uh, music you wanted to insert in here. Is that right? Yes. So, so Kalakaua and his siblings were all quite gifted composers, apparently. And mm. um, so I thought maybe an interesting tune to include here was a song by Prince Leliohoku, the brother of uh, Kalakaua, who, who died around this time. Okay. And this song became known as the Hawaiian War Chant. It was played by loads of kind of jazz groups in the 20th century in America. So it kind of had a, a life outliving its original um, composition on the island. There's a sunny little, funny little melody that was started by a native down in Waikiki. He would gather a crowd down beside the sea and they'd play his gay Hawaiian chant. Soon the other little native started singing it And the hula hula maiden started swinging it Like a tropical storm, that's the way it hit Funny little gay Hawaiian chant Ahoy, ta-hua-la Ahoy, ta-hua-la Though it started on an island on Hawaii way It's as popular in Tennessee or Iowa If you wander it to any... All right, Joe, uh, moving swiftly along uh you're gonna bring us up to the end of the 1800s correct yes so i have been tasked with telling you the story of annexation of hawaii which unfortunately is hard to do in a hawaii big island specific way so i mean we're jumping and... around all over this archipelago yeah. at the moment at this we, point yeah. but uh we're, we're trying to focus on the big island but we won't always manage it so yeah. it definitely affects the big island uh, sure but it's it's hard to to say 
You also uh, mentioned prior to this episode, Joe, that Stuff You Should Know, one of the podcasts that, that inspires this podcast, mm. did, a, did a whole episode on this, correct? And you're going to try to sum yeah, it up no, in about I, 10 minutes. Yeah, I would recommend that. They did an episode just on the annexation of Hawaii. So yep. if you want more than, than what I'm going to provide, uh, I would check out Stuff You Should Know. That was about 50 minutes long. So hopefully yep. we, can, boy, oh boy. we can wrap it up in, in, in a bit less than that. We can trim it. Yeah, an important trend that's behind all of this is that after Kama, Kamehameha II allowed commoners to buy land, so previously only chiefs had been on, allowed to own land, much of the buying was done by foreigners. Right. And by the end of the 1800s, as much of a quarter of the land was owned by Americans and Europeans. Great. And most of that was sugar plantations. Great. So this obviously changed Hawaii pretty fundamentally. Chinese and more significantly Japanese contract laborers and the plantations also really changed the demographics because the, the native Hawaiians were not willing to work the backbreaking labor. How uh, dare they? Getting people on kind of indentured servitude contracts was boy, the way that boy. this was done. Oh, Good for them. Um, oh. And that's a, a trend we've seen in the Caribbean and in the Southeast yeah, Asia as well. Just, you know, plantation owners start with the native population and the native population like, no. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and then you import people who are hoping for a better life. And you don't give it to them. Yeah. Uh, so Hawaii is becoming globalized and its independence was in peril. And a phrase I saw um, in a few places was, uh, the missionaries came to do good and they stayed to do well. Mm. Oof. Uh, so the descendants of missionaries were often people buying these plantations. And, you know, they were born in Hawaii and they're like, well, I want to do well. Right. I'm first going to say something nice about uh, King David Kalakwai, the, the the king at the time. Mm-hmm. He oversaw a cultural renaissance in Hawaii. Sounds nice. He re- Great. You know, a lot of a lot of the ancient customs have been outlawed by some either Kamehameha you know, II, I think. kings yeah. or iconoclastic. God is a lie. Converts. Mm-hmm. God is a lie, or God is not the volcano. It's the the guy from Europe, um, White Jesus. Yeah. Uh, so wow. he reintroduced the hula, which obviously became something widespread. We all know what that is, yeah. Synonymous, yeah. Lua martial arts, uh, and also surfing, which apparently had been outlawed. So surfing was, as we know it, standing up. Surfing was invented in Hawaii yeah. by Hawaiians. Um, Very cool. They, other Polynesians kind of had things where you messed around in the surf on boards, but the Hawaiians were the ones who stood up first, apparently. Cool. Um. And he also started writing down chants that had been orally transmitted up to that point and writing new chants. So he got the title The Merry Monarch uh, and the Merry Monarch Festival in Hilo every year since 1964 uh, is named for him and looks like great fun. Nice. So that's things in uh, Kalokawa's favour. Uh-oh. However, <laughs> under his the rule, cons column. under oh. his rule, the influence of the native monarchy really dwindled. Okay. Uh, so he was convivial and he was, um, you know, he's, he was going out to the US and, and getting recognition uh, from other countries and great diplomatic relationships with, with France and with Japan. I think the Meiji. Could we say he, he hula'd while Hawaii burned? Does that? Yeah, maybe. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> no, well, like, it was more into a way It was just yeah. that he, the, the political reality was that the power of the, the white people was growing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, and they had a sort of a democracy. So people could get elected to important offices. And 
there was a growing influence of the the big five companies, which I think Luke's going to talk about a bit more later. But these were some bit, yeah. large companies who ran sugar, banking, finance, and local government. You know, the I think classic. you have it in the notes here, Joe. Uh, sugar Barons, which is sugar probably Barons. a very good name for them. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, in uh, like an important development in 1887 there was a group called the Hawaiian League set up kind of political party and they were a group of I say pro-US people like many of them were born here but they were culturally not Hawaiian right and I, I yeah I have here sugar and pineapple barons including Sanford Dole whose brother would set up the Dole pineapple company oh wow yep like who, the, I'll talk who, about the tins of pineapple who, that I own Mm-hmm. If they're if you're in the US or or Europe, most of the world, I would say, or Britain, distinct from Europe, as we know. Yep. Uh, so you can tell they did okay out of mm. all of this that's coming. Uh, they were concerned with corruption, royal corruption. Apparently, uh, there was something to do with an opium contract that had been sold to someone, mm. and you know, corruption is always the cry of people who want to lead a coup, isn't it? Um, so they teamed up with the Honolulu Rifles Militia, which was led by Canadian slash US Union vet uh, Volney Valancourt Ashford. What is he? What? What? Volney Valancourt Ashford, known as VV for sure. Uh, so he led this militia that had been used by the government to put down riots occasionally, but uh, they were convinced, uh, an all white militia as they were, that maybe uh, the corruption was bad. And they kind of forced the king to sign a new constitution under fear of assassination while locked up in his palace. Great. Yeah. Uh, And the government of um, Mr. Gibson was dismissed. This was the the guy who came here to be a Mormon community leader, got done on some financial irregularities and uh, started looking for other ways to be an influential figure. Um, (laughs) Instagram. Uh, And so he became prime minister. Which right. is, uh, you know, so uh, he's gone now. The new constitution called the Bayonet Constitution. So, um, oh, the, boy. the sister, the sister of the king, uh, Lilio Aquilani, um, this quote from her, um, saying, It has been known since that day as the Bayonet Constitution, and the name is well chosen for the cruel treatment received by the king from his military companies, which have been organized by his enemies under other pretenses, was really to give them the power of coercion, it was a chief measure used to enforce his submission. So it really weakened his power compared to the legislature. He became kind of a constitutional monarch, but quite a toothless one. Right. And some stuff was like that voting had been for all men, regardless of race, before this in the old constitution. The new constitution gave the vote only to Hawaiian, American or European men over 21 who lived in Hawaii. They weren't subjects, they just had to live there. So no no Chinese, no Japanese? Is that... The group that's being well, like yeah, uh, the Asians were explicitly provided deprived of the vote in both houses of mm. legislature. Um, they had to be literate with no unpaid taxes, and they had to take an oath to support the law of the land. And then the property ownership went to three thousand dollars, and a minimum income six hundred dollars for voters in the House of Nobles. So which you're, that's you're not inflation. Poor, you're out of luck. That's, yeah, that's a lot of money. Yeah. three thousand dollars in yep. 1887 is a lot of money. Can't pay up. Say goodbye to um, your voting rights. Yeah. So most poor native Hawaiians just couldn't really vote. In 1888, Robert William Wilcox, who was a Hawaiian, despite his incredibly European name, he tried to depose the king in favor of his sister, the aforementioned Lilio Kalani, 
because he thought she'd be a bit stronger. He had a 300-strong militia, but he was foiled and exiled to San Francisco. Uh, I found a book that was published in 19, or 1891 that I think you mentioned, Mark. What was the name of the book? The like It was kind of a, a government of the Kingdom of Hawaii history book. Uh, yeah, uh, I can't remember the, word, the name. Uh, I, I've got a link yeah. to it in my notes. I'll, I'll, I'll put it up. But it is really sad. So yep. it ends in 1891 with um, describing the funeral of, uh, of King Kalakaua. Who, who died in San You're Francisco right, he did, when he was yeah. there for medical treatment. And he was brought home on on, the, on a ship, the Charleston, and there were big ceremonies in Honolulu. Um, and on the same day, this is quoting directly from the book, his sister, the regent, she'd been the regent while he was away, took the oath to maintain the constitution and was proclaimed queen under the title of Lilio Kalani. And ends with the new reign has opened under the most favorable auspices may it be a long peaceful and prosperous one if this book had been published a year later that would seem right. a really stupid thing to say uh. at the end of your history book because her reign was not long lived in the election of 1892 uh, of the 9500 registered voters 7000 of them had formally sent petitions to the queen asking her to okay. get them a new constitution she said to have Ignore them would be to disregard the voice of God, which is what we believe the voice of the people is. No true Hawaiian chief would have done other than to promise consideration of their wishes. But consideration was too much. Uh, uh, she wanted to bring more powers back to the monarchy, and a committee of public safety was formed by some of the um, the sugar barons and and and, and, and sugar boys, hangers little on. sweetie boys. <laughs> In. Uh, January 93, a coup was led by Sanford B. Dole, who you should look up a picture of him. He's got like a pointy kind of Saruman beard uh, and is the son of a pastor and brother of a pineapple king. Uh, He deposed the king and founded the Republic of Hawaii with the support, very controversially, a detachment of U.S. Marines uh, from the USS Boston that had been anchored at Hawaii at the time. So the the minister, the, the essentially the ambassador from the US, believed his standing instructions were to make sure there was never any risk of harm to American citizens. And this coup told him, oh, oh no, there's geez. a risk of harm to American citizens. You should give us some Marines to put on the street as an implicit threat of violence if we're resisted. And he went along with it. So the US was complicit, albeit maybe potentially somewhat accidentally, but they were complicit in this coup. Okay. And uh, Lilio Kalai, she did um, not abdicate, but she surrendered. And what she wrote in her surrender was, Now to avoid any collision of armed forces and perhaps loss of life, I do, under this protest and impelled by said forces, yield my authority until such time as the government of the United States shall, upon the facts being presented to it, undo the action of its representative and reinstate me in the authority which I claim as the constitutional sovereign of the Hawaiian Islands. She would die in exile in 1917, still advocating for an independent Hawaii, but she would never be Mm. reinstated. Uh, Grover Cleveland, who was president at the time, was an anti-imperialist, and he was outraged by what had happened. Uh, There was an annexation bill going through Congress, and he, he wouldn't let it pass and he actually sent warships to Hawaii okay. threatening an invasion to restore the monarchy and the rebels relented in their plan to be annexed 
which was their ultimate goal, and set up what? an independent republic with Dole as president instead. And Cleveland kind of went, okay, at least you're independent. What? Yep. And there was attempts to bring Lilia Kaloi back, but she insisted that those who had led the coup would be punished, and the US government was not on board with that. So okay. that was a sticking point. There was a brief uprising to try and reinstate her, I think led by Wilcox again, the guy who had tried to put her in power in the first place uh, in 1895. It was lasted a couple of days. And, um, you know, afterwards, Lilio Kalani was put under house arrest and convicted of treason and imprisoned in her own home, which was a nice palace, but, you know, still... And on uh, January 24th of that year, she abdicated right. and formally ended the Hawaiian monarchy. Eventually, under William McKinley as President of the United States, uh, during the heady days of the Spanish-American War and expansionism, uh, they would annex Hawaii into the territory okay. uh, of Hawaii. And there was a ceremony, the lowering of the flag, the really yeah. terrible flag, but nonetheless, the independent Hawaiian flag and raising the U.S. flag that basically no Hawaiians, no Native Hawaiians attended. And if they did, they came wearing Hawaiian flag pins. Right. As a kind of an ironic, uh, like a silent protest. And so that's how the U.S. ended up with the territory of Hawaii, which had no import tariffs on sugar, which was great, but also wasn't subject to the immigration laws of the United States because it was an unincorporated territory. So lots of Chinese labor could come over win, win, win. to do indentured service. So it was uh, really because of the corruption of the king. That was the key. That was the key thing. Yeah. Yeah. Thank God they got rid of that corruption. Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> oh yeah. God, no, I, really I, 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 I knew it. As I said oh. to you before we started recording, like, I knew it had been stolen because everywhere it has been colonized thinks that way about their history but i didn't realize quite how blatantly i think that, like i think the u.s government apologized in 1993 100 years after this where they looked at the reports and went yeah no we really oh shouldn't have done that it would have been it would have been clinton yeah, yeah. bill clinton i think that's, yeah i think it was clinton like, yeah he didn't I'm give it sorry. back <laughs> <laughs> so whoops sorry um, we stole your country anyway yeah Okay, so yeah, in um, in April 1900, Congress approved the Hawaiian Organic Act, which organized the territory uh, from this point forward. At this point, the population was around 150,000, but the amount of settlers coming here, as you alluded to, Joe, would increase the population massively over the next 50 years, uh, with total numbers reaching almost half a million over that period, mm-hmm. or uh, in, other, in other words, an increase of around 230%. And uh, in all 50 through years. immigration, so the native Hawaiian populations being oh, eclipsed. they're being yeah, completely eclipsed. Exactly. Um, this Hawaiian Organic Act also established the the post of governor of Hawaii. Uh, territorial governors were appointed directly by the president, with the advice and consent of the U.S. Senate. Residents did not get a say, and governors served for four years unless uh, removed sooner by the president. So basically, you just your a governor is imposed. On territory and doesn't matter what the locals think whatsoever. In 1901, the Hawaiian Pineapple Company is established by James Jim Dole when he first plants pineapples in the Hawaiian countryside. Uh, and this company would grow massively over the decades ahead, gaining its founders the nickname of the Pineapple King, 
And in the early 1920s, he purchased an entire island, the island of Lanai, which is the sixth largest island in the, in the archipelago and basically turned the whole thing into a pineapple oh, plantation. God. Yep. Which supplied around 75% of the world's pineapples and would eventually become known as Pineapple Island. And and this is the the cousin of of the president of the pretend Republic of Hawaii. Yes. Um, That's the one Santa beside Pedro. Maui, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. Uh, so. And the company would later be named after its founder, which is the, the, the Dole um, Fruit Company, which, you, mm-hmm. as you alluded to, Mark, people probably have, uh, see in their supermarket every day today. Yeah, Sanford B. Dole was uh, selected as the first governor and would serve for three years until he was later appointed as Hawaii District Court Judge in 1903. He was a lawyer, to be fair. That's not... Mm. It's not a huge thing. Like, I mean, it's inappropriate to steal it. Sure. Steal it. Yeah. Steal a country. From its yeah. king. But That's the, not the, the most egregious the, part of this. You know, he was qualified to be a judge. As sure. He clearly is a, is a upstanding moral character. Um, <laughs> just to talk a little bit about the big five, which we alluded to earlier. Um, so as a territory of the US, it became much cheaper and easier to export to the mainland. Mm-hmm. Uh, which had been the motivation. Exactly. Being annexed. Exactly. And so sugarcane plantations soon saw the benefits of that. Particularly, five kingdom era corporations benefited from annexation, uh, massively becoming multi million dollar conglomerations. Uh, These were Castle and Cook, Alexander and Baldwin, C. Brewer and Co., uh, American Factors, later Amfac, and Theo H. Davies and Co. I don't know if any of you have heard heard of any of these, but I haven't. No. Uh, But but they are hugely influential in the, over the next few decades, uh, these five companies. But I suppose how much do you know about, like, the r- sugar's really a raw ingredient, isn't it? Well, True. I mean, I've... You know, it's very valuable. I've heard of Tate like, & Lyle, their that's true. UK brand, did a lot of mm. crazy, bad stuff. Mm. But these guys could be, you know, just supplying big corporations. Oh, yeah, they could be, stuff. like, Hershey's supplier mm-hmm. or something like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I just lifted a line here from hawaiihistory.org, which was a, a good source. It says, their economic power translated into political power as well, obviously, uh, and politics and business in the islands continued in an intricate cross-pollination. Edward P. Dole, Attorney General of Hawaii, wrote in 1903, there is a government in this territory which is centralized to an extent unknown in the United States and probably almost as centralized as it was in France under Louis XIV. So... Yeah, that'll give you an idea of, of kind of how um, how cozy uh, with with uh, the government of, of the territory these big five um, were. D- should I mention it some way that I've been to Hawaii? Oh, sure. I haven't mentioned that. Not, not to the big island, but I, I, I went, I went <laughs> there was... a couple of years ago. It's amazing. Pretty beautiful. Uh, went, went to Maui for All right. a week or so. Uh, just the most unspeakably beautiful stuff I've ever seen. Uh, humpback whales uh, swam underneath my kayak. It was it was nuts. It's really cool. Don't want to go. Would recommend. Very strong recommend. Wow. I don't want to be the voice of okay. you know pushing excessive tourism towards Hawaii because you know they got they got lots of challenges and stuff and you know and all the rest of that. But yeah. dang, it's really nice there. It is. It is very nice. For sure. Uh, so during this period in the kind of early 1900s, there was a significant military buildup on the islands. Uh, as the U.S. recognized and took advantage of the strategic location of the yeah. islands. And I mean, that's part of why there were U.S. Marines in the neighborhood, is like they'd started taking an interest in a, a, a harbor that we'll have heard of Oh yeah, uh, quite early Close on. Close to Honolulu. Nice yep. place to yeah. hang out in the middle of the Pacific. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, one of the military bases that was established in, in the kind of first decade of the 1900s was Pearl Harbor. 
on Oahu, and we will touch on that a little bit later, or certainly I will, but I won't go into any great detail on it because, uh, again, you can find loads of detail on it uh, pretty much anywhere you want to look. And, and it's on a different island. It's on a different <laughs> island. So, um, World War There's a reason one. we chose to do one island. Yes. Uh, World War One. although Hawaii was an American territory, more than 10,000 uh, individuals volunteered to serve in the armed forces in the First World War, which was among the highest rates for U.S. states and territories. And uh, about 101 of those lost their lives. The first Hawaiians to die in the First World War were killed a few days before the U.S. even declared war. On April 6th, 1917, six sailors from Hawaii were among those who died when their merchant cargo ship, the SS Aztec, was torpedoed by a German submarine off the coast of France. And uh, along with the Lusitania, this was one of the moments that would propel the U.S. into the conflict. Right. Mm. Uh, in 1917, as you mentioned, Joe, Queen Lily Kalani passes away. And although she had been unsuccessful uh, in her pursuits for recompense from the U.S. government in 1911, she had finally been granted a lifetime pension of $1,250 a month by the territory of Hawaii. However, this settlement never addressed the question of legality right. and procedure itself. And the figure was greatly reduced from what she'd originally requested. So you know maybe hush money i guess you could go away that, money but uh yeah go away money uh, and stop bothering us the first congressional bill for hawaii statehood was proposed in 1919 on the argument that uh, the first world war had proved hawaii's loyalty to the u.s but it didn't go very far another attempt was made in 1935 but again went nowhere largely because apparently fdr himself was uh, strongly opposed to hawaiian statehood in september of 1932 there was an incident known as the massey oh. trial uh, yeah. Which was a? Uh, did you read about this? Offshore, yeah, have a whole a, season about it. It's yeah, you, go on. It's messy stuff. Um, basically, to sum up in a in a paragraph, a naval officer's wife got drunk, and alleged that she was beaten and raped. Uh, and and there were five plantation workers uh, were arrested in connection with this incident, and were later positively identified by the victim. Despite uh, apparent lack of evidence, they were con- quickly condemned in the press. But by the time the case went to trial, the jury failed to reach a verdict. Her husband took matters into his own hands, along with some of his friends. And one of the accused was severely beaten, while another, Joseph Kahawaii, was murdered. And a jury of locals later found uh, this group of men guilty and sentenced them to 10 years hard labor. And as a result, local white leaders and 103 members of the U.S. Congress signed a letter threatening to impose martial law over the territory. Uh, which pressured the governor at the time to commute the sentences of the accused to one <sighs> hour each. Yep. So uh, that it, definitely it, it, exposed racial tensions among ex- the Hawaiian population. Yeah, that's yeah. an ugly incident in all kinds of ways. Yeah, and served to galvanize the non-white population together, um, which which would be just one incident okay. on, on, on the road to um, uh, something I'm going to talk about a little bit later. I got interested in Honolulu Civil Beat because I listened to Offshore and I heard the first season about race and uh, I just love that they talked about like these really intricate relationships that we have and I hadn't heard the Massey case in a medium like that before and I was like 
Yes, tell their history. Like, let people know, you know, because not a lot of people know yeah. that. And it's kind of like the only thing, the only way that you learn about that case is actually in college. They don't teach it in, like, we have Hawaiian history, but they don't teach that part. And it's like, why? Mm. You know what I mean? Like, why do we not teach these things in our school? But anyway, that's a different conversation. The biggest thing is, like, understanding the history, mm-hmm. you know, between that relationship. So if you listen to... um the first season of Offshore, we do go into, you know, like race and power yeah. in Hawaii. And um, even talking about it now, it, it really, you know, <laughs> you really understand that it comes from it's a historical relationship. Yeah. And um, even the things that we're going through now are just, you know, the results of that relationship over generations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of people attribute it, it to, um, you know, the first um, landing of foreigners here in Hawaii, um, the most infamous one, <laughs> uh, James, Captain James yep. Cook. But it's also like in waves, you know. Um, I think if you ask me personally right now, like that relationship, it definitely comes from the waves of foreigners that have came here from Captain James Cook to the annexation to modern immigration and other systems that really perpetuate the idea of Hawaii that people see but might not be true, you know? And I think if you want to explain to people the relationship between Native Hawaiians and Haole, you definitely have to understand the historical context that that relationship is, you know, founded on. And it's not a very pretty one. Obviously, one of the most pivotal moments of the conflict was the attack on Pearl Harbor, which brought the U.S. into the war on the Allied side. Again, if you don't know anything about it, just put it into it's any search engine. Yeah. Yeah. Google it. Yeah, um, it's a whole movie. It, uh, it killed 2,000 people and drastically changed the trajectory of the Hawaiian Islands. Uh, soon after the Pearl Harbor attack, martial law was declared. And as elsewhere in the U.S., internment camps were established. However... As you might have heard previously on this podcast, there were many, many, many Japanese people who lived here and people of Japanese descent. So with more than 160,000 people of Japanese origin or descent living in Hawaii, it was soon realized. And they were all in church. No, uh, because it was soon realized Mm. that imprisoning all of them was not only impractical, but would basically wipe out the economy of the islands. Yeah. uh, Because the population was somewhere in the region of 460,000. So you're talking like a third a quarter to a third of, of the population. So I, I there's a Time article actually called How Hawaii's Japanese Population Was Spared Internment During World War II uh, by a, a journalist called Richard B. Frank. I'm going to quote briefly from it here. Very good name for a journalist. Mm. B. Frank, indeed. General Walter Short, the army commander prior to Pearl Harbor, had announced that so long as they remained loyal, the Japanese population would be treated fairly. Short's mm-hmm. replacement, uh, Lieutenant General Emmons reaffirmed this policy on December 21st, 1941. Uh, but the real unsung hero of the story is Emmons himself. Historians who examined his conduct concluded that while Emmons gave lip service to the need for an evacuation uh, of the Japanese on, on Hawaii, he really staged a shrewdly calculated deliberate delaying action. The U.S. Navy's victory at the Battle of Midway in June 1942 lifted the threat of an invasion And by July, Emmons proclaimed the conduct of Hawaii's Japanese population was, quote, highly satisfactory. And in the end, after scaling down the target figures drastically, Emmons transferred only 1,875 Hawaiian residents of Japanese ancestry from the mainland, protecting the remaining 98%. So 
That's a, a a good story of Japanese internment, I guess, because you know ninety eight percent of them were not, a, were not less interned. But bad, like sure. it's still racial segregation of your citizens for sure. My my because you think they're disloyal because they have different skin to you. I mean, my read on this was Which, that uh, I don't know from that article was it's that the like ickiest bit of America in World War Two for sure. Well, but uh, the, my my just, read from the article was that um, this guy Emmons. Yeah. kind of researched and and I, I guess had had some grounds for the two percent of people that he did uh deport to internment camps uh so like it wasn't as indiscriminate as it was in, sure you know the in possibly in the mainland u.s anyway but the the the, the phrase like as long as they stay loyal they'll be fine is sure. very is very kind of orwellian mm. Like once your thoughts are pure, you have nothing to worry mm. about. It's like, but I thought I had rights, just yeah. inherently, you know. Not, a, not a, under martial law. That all men are created equal, you know that stuff. Okay, mm. I used to live in Japan. I had very little going on in my life when I lived in Japan, and uh, 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 there was uh, there was a plaque in my little village uh, where I, I lived and taught in the local school. It's uh, the village of Hashihama, in the city of Imabari. Uh, in the uh, prefecture of Ehime, places that no one has ever heard of uh, because uh, nothing really happens there. They huff a lot of paint, according to law enforcement. But uh, apart from that, nothing really happens. I've, I've heard of Imabari because of the towels, but that might have been... That was because of me. Yes, exactly. The towels are... Uh, yeah. They're a big towel factory. Apparently the towels are very uh, good. Apparently yeah. the... the Yeah, they make a lot of uh, huge boats as well. So uh, anyway, so um, there, there was a guy who is from Hashihama and there's a plaque dedicated to him and his name is uh, Shigenori uh, Nishikaichi. And uh, so he crash-landed his plane after bombing Pearl Harbor on the island of Nihau. And it led to this, oh, I read about this, it led to this incident yes. where there was a few kind of Japanese people living on the island of Nihau, which is a very, very small island of, of Hawaii. And effectively, he kind of convinced them to help him kind of try to escape. And it all got very kind of, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm recalling this from memory. It all got a bit bungledy and, you know, people got killed and it got a bit messy. But the whole story of his ability to convince the, the local Japanese population to help him was one of the things cited as one of the reasonings for internment. That if this guy was able to turn the loyalties of these two Japanese people so easily, mm. then how loyal are any of these Japanese to America? And I, I think they might have been, you know, first or second generation uh, you know, Japanese. So, uh, yeah, look, uh, but uh, it was... That is interesting. It was, it, the, the guy was from the little village I used to live in in, in Japan. And that's how I... This, this is the only thing about this village. There's nothing else about this village. Is that this guy's from here, and that's what that's why why I know about that. But yeah, that's enough, Mark. That's that's more than my village yeah. uh, where I'm no from. Worries. Um, there was also a, an interesting tidbit that I read where um, U.S. dollars that were issued in Hawaii were stamped and marked as like Hawaiian dollars, basically. Like and weird, and that was in readiness for a possible invasion of Hawaii. So basically, it, it was just like there were real fears that Hawaii could be kind of taken over by the Japanese in the course of World War II. And so that would have meant that a huge kind of chunk of, of U.S. dollars would have fallen into the hands of Japanese and therefore would have created kind of economic mayhem. And so the U.S. Treasury, I believe, marked dollars that were issued in, in Hawaii. And so they, they basically kind of gave themselves a get out of, of jail free card where they were like, 
if these islands are taken over, then any bill marked with Hawaii on it is invalid immediately, basically. So I, I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, for sure. Mark, did you want to talk about um, some of the Hawaii-specific incidents that you were reading about in World War Two? Yeah, I just noticed that there was a bunch of stuff related to World War Two, specifically around the island. Um, so around the time of Pearl Harbor, uh, some submarines uh, bombed the island. There was some some shelling. Um, there was a small port around Hilo, um, and it got uh, transformed into a sort of a, a you know naval aerodrome. Uh, but I think there were like seaplanes because it's a little little bay. You know, it wasn't hugely involved in in, in the war effort, but you know the, the entire Hawaiian archipelago was obviously very very involved. Okay. The other thing I want to talk about in relation to World War Two was the beginning of a cultural phenomenon in Hawaii, which is spam. Basically, during and following the conflict, there was a large military presence in Hawaii. However, it was pretty difficult to get fresh meat out to Hawaii, particularly with a, a kind of, you know, expanding population due to a lot of soldiers being stationed there. And so a lot of soldiers ended up being fed a lot of spam, which is cheap and non-perishable and ended up being a staple of local cuisine. Mm-hmm. After Chinese, Japanese and Filipino migrant workers all developed various methods of incorporating spam meat into their own uh, kind of native dishes. Uh, its popularity only increased uh, from there. And so, like, you know, today I think spam is is pretty much synonymous with uh, Hawaii. Uh, and and I, I, I kind of know, I, I sort, of, sort of knew that myself. But uh, again, I, I give a shout out to Stuff You Should Know, who did an episode many, many years ago on spam. And uh, it's it's quite fascinating. If you don't know anything about spam, there's a lot to learn. Uh, there, there was another food stuff invented just after World War Two that... Um... Is is apparently a, a, a local classic from Hilo. Okay, it seems to be very popular. Called the the Loco Moco. Excellent. Okay. Um, is this the burger with the gravy? So it's like it was. Yeah, it was designed by the Lincoln Grill as a kind of an alternative, like a, something as easy to prepare as a sandwich, but like heartier. <laughs> okay. And it's rice with a burger patty on top, and then gravy, and often an egg, and there's all kinds oh, wow. of variants. Sounds real good. To suit different tastes, but it looks real heavy, real high in calories, mm. and real, I suppose, not good for you if you're eating it every day. But uh, And it was named after a, guy, a local teenager called Crazy George uh, Okimoto, I think, who was studying Spanish in school, so they were called, like, Locomoto. Okay. Oh, okay. And the, the owners of the cafe who made up this new thing were like, yeah, it works. Cool. Nice. These kids like it. We'll call it after that kid. All right. And yeah, so that's still, that's from Hilo on, on the big island. Okay. And is still eaten. In April of 1946, an earthquake in our uh, old friend Alaska resulted in a huge tsunami uh, reaching Hilo around five hours later. And the Hilo waterfront was completely destroyed. A surge is as tall as two and three story buildings hit several coastal wow. villages. And in, in Hyena, the tsunami reached its maximum height, or at least in Hawaii, of 45 feet, or th- uh, 13 and a half meters high. And uh, this calamity killed 159 people and caused $26 million in damages, and that's in 1946 dollars. Mm. And this tsunami was one of the driving forces behind the Pacific Tsunami Warning System, right. which was established just a couple of years later to try to prevent disasters like this. 
And then pretty much the last thing I want to talk about is the 1954 Democratic Revolution, which is um, kind of spinning us back to some of those race relations, uh, which I, I spoke about a little bit ago. So 1954 was uh, the Democratic Revolution, which was a nonviolent revolution, which consisted mostly of general strikes, protests and other acts of civil disobedience. And uh, it culminated in elections in 1954, where the long reign of the Hawaii Republican Party in the legislature came to an abrupt end as they were voted out of office to be replaced by members of the Democratic Party. And the strikes by labor workers demanded similar pay to their mainland counterparts and also crippled the power of sugarcane plantations and the big five oligopoly Good. Uh, over their workers. So so it's a, a bit of an overthrow of, of kind of the, the big pro-business interests that have been sort of running the show up until this point. Shall we take a quick break here and then we'll uh, power on into our last section? Sure. Mm-hmm. All right, Mark, how do we get to the modern state of Hawaii? Um, I don't know. <laughs> there was a Hawaii Admission Act of 1959. Didn't really concentrate on it because it's not really related to the island. Uh, the island is part of sure. Hawaii's, uh, you know, it's the state now, 1959. Uh, Ike, one likes Ike, apparently, and he signs the bill <laughs> uh, March 18th, 1959. Um, the, That's been coming for a while, I think. Yeah, I mean, like, it's it's weirdly late for it to be made a, a state at this point. Um but, you know, sure. And this is the last new new state that has been uh, incorporated into the United States. So um, I'm going to talk about uh, 1962, Starfish Prime. Uh, 1962, the U.S. detonated a nuclear weapon. Uh, the reason they did this then was because it was kind of at the end of a period of detente between them and the USSR, where they had stopped testing, but the USSR had started doing these kind of... Um, tests in the atmosphere and the u.s was really really keen to to do a bunch of tests as well so uh this was called starfish prime uh high above the pacific ocean sounds like a sounds like a marvel villain it or something. is <laughs> nuts starfish prime so they, they launched a thor missile to your point oh great uh, from johnston uh atoll which is uh, I've looked it up. It's its own mini episode. Like it's this. It, they used to store Agent Orange there. The stuff that used to like burn the trees in Vietnam. Um, and it's this like, you know, land aircraft carrier in the middle of the sea. Now empty, but uh, it was a military base at the time. They launched this missile from fifteen hundred kilometers towards the southwest of Hawaii. Uh, it got up to about eleven hundred kilometers into the air and then started coming back down at four hundred kilometers. They exploded the flipping thing. 1.4 megatons of nuclear warhead exploded in the atmosphere. So hmm. firstly, there was this kind of weird uh, aurora. You can see pictures of it where it's kind of, it almost looks like a feather because the bits of the missile are kind of streaking across the sky. And everyone could see this for thousands and thousands of kilometers. Um, and then, much more interestingly, a bunch of uh, electrons surged away from the blast quickly along the Earth's magnetic field lines. This phenomena, as you may have heard it from some movies, has another name called an electromagnetic pulse or an EMP. Uh, so they created okay. a huge EMP in the atmosphere. 
In Hawaii, it blew out hundreds of streetlights and caused widespread telephone outages, causing electrical surges all, all across that. the place and uh, in airplanes. And there was radio blackouts as well. Um, it had been predicted, but they had no idea it was going to be as strong as it was. And even more uh, terrifyingly, because they, they exploded the missiles so far up, the electrons didn't really dissipate. And they kind of stuck there in a cloud, frying satellites that came through it. So they they fried six satellites, including one Russian, uh, and probably fried a bunch more that just kind of happened to fail around that time. But it couldn't be proved. Really crazy stuff. What what is going on? Anyway, um. Trying to tighten things to the island a little bit. Agriculture, um, they are a worldwide leader in harvesting macadamia nuts and orchids. I mean, obviously. Uh, obviously. Who doesn't think macadamia nuts and anything? That's it. Uh, I, I, I will say one of the memorable meals I had on my trip to Hawaii was macadamia chicken, uh, which uh, I, I just made that connection when I read that, uh, that, that paragraph. Yeah, um, nice. And they are the only U.S. state where vanilla, cacao, and coffee are grown commercially. There's uh, hmm. an incomplete list of, of other Delicious things that are grown locally include ginger, honey, coconuts, uh, pineapple, of course, papaya, mango, jackfruit, durian, apparently. They're really stinky thing that they <laughs> like in, in, in Malaysia and uh, Singapore. Oh, Rambutan, which I've never heard of. Starfruit, cherimoya, and you and me as well. Figs, lishi, and dragon fruit. So, yeah, bit of a bit of a Garden of Eden. Get on board with pretty food. much all those, Very except for the durian. Um, Cattle. Uh, so this overlaps with my previous section. Cattle arrived in Hawaii in 1793 when Captain George Vancouver presented King Kamehameha with six cows and a bull. And Kamehameha created a 400-acre pasture surrounded by a rock wall and prohibited killing the cattle, creating a taboo around it, so that they could grow in numbers. And they did. Just one bull? Just the one, one really randy bull. Uh, oh, because that's, a, that's, a that's all you need. If ever by the mid 1800s, there were 25,000 wild cattle. So uh, oh Kamehameha III lifted the prohibition during his reign, and they started eating a bunch of beef. And um, they started to bring in um, Spanish vaqueros. I, I think I read somewhere that they were actually Mexicans brought in to help teach the Hawaiians how to manage these cattle. And over time, they'd produce a lot of salt beef for sailors and hides for New England uh, tanneries and so on. Um, and then also to kind of call back to the point about um, telescopes and observatories and, and Mauna Kea specifically. So um, in 1964, there was an observatory founded in Mauna Kea, partially due to the views of astronomer Gerard Kuiper of the Kuiper Belt. Oh. And uh, I mean, I'm not going to give all 13 telescopes here, but they, they started with a 2.2 meter reflector in 1970 and just kind of just kept going from there. It is the site of the world's most important collection of telescopes generally regarded, uh, including a 3.8 meter UK telescope, a 3.6 meter Canada, France, Hawaii telescope and a three meter NASA telescope. I think a lot of those were put in in 1979. Currently, as I say, 13 observatories there. And we talked a little bit earlier about how they're trying to put in a 30-meter telescope on Mauna Kea, which has created, you know, a lot of resistance, partially because there's already 13 observatories there. Why do you need to put another one on the, you know, sacred mountain? So a lot of people um, know about Mauna Kea. It's obviously a mountain here in Hawaii. It's on the 
Hawaii Island or Big Island, as people call it. And it's definitely considered sacred to Native Hawaiian culture and Native Hawaiian like religion and practices um, because it is a part of our creation story, the Kumulipo. And it's just the, our relationship to land for Native Hawaiians, but in for indigenous communities in general, we are re- in relationship to the land. Um, so a lot of the cl- conflict is around building the 30 meter telescope. It'll be another telescope, probably the biggest one that the mountain will have. And I think the first telescope was built in the 60s or 70s. Right. And since then, they've built many more. Um, and the biggest um, and most like publicized protests were back in 2015 mm-hmm. um, when a lot of Native Hawaiians and like non-Hawaiians um, came together to block construction of the telescope. But the, I think the crazy thing is like, the, this has been happening for decades, you know, and the ways that we've been like pushing and pulling in this relationship for so long, not yeah. only in Mount Akea, but in other issues, it just it keeps happening, you know. A piece of trivia, friend of the podcast, Krashmir Kirish Dimach, gave us. Apparently, botanist David Douglas uh, died on the slopes of Mount Akea, which is another Mount Akea fact. Uh, he was found dead in a cattle pit having been trampled by a wild bull that fell into the pit on top of him. But there is a theory that he was killed because earlier that day he'd stopped in the hut of a criminal called Edward Gurney. So this site is now called Kaluakwaka, translating as the doctor's pit. Nice. Cool. I want to talk a little bit about the economy. Uh, basically, Hawaii ranks quite low among US states, at least in terms of personal income and in terms of uh, value of manufacturing shipments, uh, retail sales, and bank deposits. And largely because of its insularity and dependence on imports, Hawaii has a pretty high cost of living and transportation costs. So the the, the kind of transportation burden of, of exporting things to the islands is, is usually kind of tacked on to the price of almost all consumer goods. Mm. Tourism is the largest industry, uh, and the expansion of tourism has been fairly uh, rapid since the end of Second World War. And the majority of visitors come from the U.S. mainland, Canada, Australia, uh, and Asia, particularly Japan. And its biggest exports include food and clothing. And these industries play a small role in the Hawaiian economy due to the shipping distance to the viable markets, such as the West Coast of the U.S. And the state's food exports include coffee, macadamia nuts, which you mentioned, Mark, pineapple, livestock, sugarcane, and honey. And uh, interestingly, honeybees might be the state's most valuable export by weight, wow. uh, which I, I thought was pretty interesting. So they um, export bees? I guess they do, yeah. They must export huh. like Hawaiian honeybees, I guess. Too. I was wondering what livestock uh, yeah. were in question. Yep. Bees? Yep, apparently so. Wow. One other thing I thought was worth mentioning is that the Calais, or South Point, is the southernmost point in the U.S. states. So Guam, which is the United States territory, is further south. Right. But but this point of Hawaii is the lowest, further south bit of a U.S. state, which surprised me. I thought Hawaii was further north than yeah. that. Same, yeah. I just mm-hmm. imagined it was kind of somewhere off... Uh, California? You know, the west coast, yeah. Yeah, well, we're yeah. all wrong there. Okay. Uh, but it's a popular fishing spot for red snapper and ulua. Mm. Um, locals fish from the cliffs, dangling perilously over the edge of steep lava ledges, which sounds cool. But uh, swimming is not recommended because it uh, there's a current called the Haleia current, which uh, is named after a chief who was carried off to his death. Jeez. And 
is also responsible for bringing in large amounts of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch to wash up on the, the shores. And because it's so difficult to access, it's uh, difficult to remove, and so there's a threat to wildlife oh, there. So again, the, the greater outside world encroaching on Hawaii from from the, the ocean uh, is, is still a feature. And we we should probably mention that there are occasional intermittent conversations about changing the relationship between native Hawaiian people and the United States to be more similar to how other Native American yeah, nations. Yeah, like, like a Hawaiian nation the within the state of Hawaii. Yeah, and I, I, don't, I don't have a lot on that mm. because, I mean, it's never, there's never been enough votes in Congress to really bring it anywhere, but mm. it, it's kind of consistently discussed that perhaps Native Hawaiians would have better grounds to defend things like Mauna mm. Kea and, and other things of cultural importance if they they kind of you know not that the protections afforded to native american nations in the u.s are flawless sure but they are definitely on a different standing to just we are the minority in our own state which is what happened when the state became about so slowly yeah i'm, I'm just looking here at the the, the kind of statistics in the notes here uh, apparently 12.4% of the population nowadays are Native Hawaiian, so they're in a significant minority. On, on on Hawaii Island, anyway. Mm. So that's in the in Hawaii County, which is the, the U.S. county that the island makes sure, up. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, so they are in the minority, and that obviously skews the influence of Native, Indigenous Hawaiian culture yeah. on, on Hawaii as a state, uh, which, you know... Democracy doesn't serve you very well if you've been if you've been out populated. Um, if people need to know something, right? Like if people are coming to Hawaii as a visitor, as a tourist, whatever, and they need to know something, I think it's the willingness and openness to understand um, our history. Yeah. You know, even a little tidbit that like. Kamehameha the first is actually from Hawaii Island and that's why we're all called Hawaiians and not like something else oh, you know because okay. even just knowing like those kinds of things and our you know our history and our relationship with our land and also with the continent mm-hmm. I think that is the biggest thing that I can personally ask for people yeah. you know okay uh, anything else gentlemen oh I think I think we <laughs> we've given we've the good old this. go <laughs> We've we've squeezed I, I, this pineapple I, I, for all the juice that's in it. I think so. Well, I think a nice thing we could finish with is just you know I don't know about you guys, but I use a certain website, a certain online encyclopedia, quite a lot for scoping out where what I'm going to research about a place. I've never heard of this website, Joe. What is this? This 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 online website, a kind of an easily editable you know community generated uh, encyclopedia, and the name that it's been given is actually from a Hawaiian word, oh. um, wiki. In Wikipedia comes from the Hawaiian word wiki wiki, which means quick. Oh, okay, cool. Which is so, uh, which is which does not describe uh, our meandering through this podcast uh, no. whatsoever. <laughs> Very not wiki. Right. We are not wiki wiki whatsoever. Um, okay, so yeah, I mean, if you've enjoyed the episode, we would appreciate if you would leave a, a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, helps others to find the show. You can get in touch with us if you have any comments or concerns or corrections. Indeed, uh, you can reach out to us directly by email uh, on 80dayspodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, where we'll be posting 
various bits and pieces of content, uh, mostly visual in nature, that uh, didn't quite uh, suit the audio medium mm. of this uh, show. And uh, you can find more about Hawaii if you need it in the show notes. We'll, we'll give links to the music and the various uh, publications that we mentioned in our show notes, as well as pictures of the, the flag and the map and all that sort of stuff. So uh, that should all be included in your podcast player, or you can find it at our website, aidayspodcast.com. Great. If you want to support the podcast, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash 80 days podcast, and you can get uh, all kinds of bonuses and, and uh, you know, additional content and postcards uh, from the three of us. I think that's it. So, uh, yeah, thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Aloha. Aloha.